Well, good morning, everyone. I'm not Taylor Combs, <clears throat> who is our lead pastor here, as you all mostly know. If you haven't, I am not the lead pastor here, but I am a pastor here at King's Cross. My name is Clint Harris. And a little bit of backstory here for me. I am a native Nashvillian, some would call a unicorn, but I feel like there's a few unicorns out here in this crowd. Um, and then also for the last 12 years have been a resident here in East Nashville. As this is a, my community, our community, my wife's community, this is one that we love and cherish and are excited to be a part of this church to help give back and to plant back into this, this space here and in this church. Um, outside of this, I'm an architect. I, I work in the healthcare industry. I help to design medical facilities. I help to work with owners and hospitals as they seek to grow their, their care, uh, whether in this community or across the nation. Um, and so bear with me as this I will have weakness in this. This is not my day-to-day, -day, every day, but I am called and I am honored to be here in front of you all speaking the Word of God. Another quick tidbit about me, and this will be a little bit more odd, this is just a hidden passion of mine, <clears throat> is that I am a major fan of any movie that involves Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, or Jean-Claude Van Damme. Now, these may not have won all the awards. These men may not have won all the awards as best actors in their time, but they really capture me in the way that they do their movies. And, and Luke, my wife, who I call Lulu and may reference to her sometimes as that, um, will know that if I ever get an evening where there is no thing I need to do, if she's gone out to some event or something like that, she knows the, the two things I'm gonna do. I'm immediately gonna go to Arby's I'm immediately going to get me a, a huge roast beef sandwich and a massive sweet tea, and I'm going to bring that home, and I'm going to find whatever movie of those three that I haven't seen in a while and plug it back in. And trust me, I think I've seen all of them at this point. Um, tying that into the sermon may be challenging today, um, but what I wanted, one movie in particular that, that came to my mind when I was reading this passage um, is a Sylvester Stallone movie. It, it was made in 1993, maybe before some of the people in here were born, um, but it actually was a future cast. What's gonna happen in the future? So long in the future from 1993 that it was 2032, which is less than a decade from where we are right now. Um, and so uh, if you go back to watch this movie, which you know, I don't know if I should encourage that from here, but it's, I enjoy it, and so uh, part of that movie theme is that criminalization has kind of been wiped out. Um, and basically, society has been able to control crime and to a point where they don't really even need police forces. They, don't, they have a set of rules that people abide by, even to the point that if you were to say a curse word or a word that's not pleasant to other people's ears, there's machines around the city that will instantly hear that and spit out a ticket for you to then have to pay for being so verbose with your words. So they've kind of honed it in Obviously not the kind of society we live in now. Um, maybe not the society we would all choose to live in either. That's pretty strict. Um, but somehow in a way, the major criminals were frozen. That was their punishment. I, I'll admit, the plot lines in these movies are very odd. <laughs> but they froze them. And, and, and so one of the main criminals um, was Wesley Snipes. And some bad men came out and they unfroze him to wreak havoc on this city. This is a man who would just seem like a pretty bad criminal in today's time. But in that time, it was unheard of. 
They didn't know what to do with this person. And he's wreaking havoc. He's, you know, killing. He's stealing. He's saying all kinds of words that would spit the machine out and break the machine. And the police force is just, they're broken. They don't know what to do. How do I handle this person? We don't even have weapons. We don't know. We've never dealt with anybody like this. So the only thing the police force can do is to unfreeze someone else. The baddest man that you've ever seen that could bring these people to justice, Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> and his nickname back in the day, and when they bring him back, is the Demolition Man, AKA the movie title, The Demolition Man. Now, I'm probably just gonna take it that far um, <laughs> in this movie. Um, but it is, a, it is a fun watch. Uh, it, it probably is not one I should recommend from up here. But nonetheless, one, the reason why I tie that into this and the reason it kind of spoke to me, one, I obviously have a passion for those types of movies. But as we'll see in this passage and how it relates to what we're going to talk about today, I see Paul, in a sense, as a demolition man. Maybe not the Sylvester Stallone demolition man, but just in the title of demolition man. What we see here is that sin and fear can help build barriers between us and God, and between us and the other people of, of God's nation. And the gospel and Paul are all about demolishing that and destroying that and telling us that there are no barriers that we need to be putting there, that God is our only true source and that he, the only true barrier is unbelief. We try to bring other things up, but the gospel tears those down. And so that's what we're going to get into today. And you can tell Taylor that I brought up Sylvester Stallone movies later. Uh, but if you want to go ahead and turn, we're going to be in Galatians 2, if you're not already there. And a little backstory on this, that we've been going through Galatians for the last couple of weeks. Paul was called to come to Galatia, to the, the nation of the Gentiles. And in that, Galatia is really kind of a, a grouping of cities, but including Antioch, where this takes place. Um, this, this book takes place, but really it represents the rest of the church. It represents everyone outside of the Jewish culture, of the Jewish law. And so we're seeing this, that it has implement, implications not only to that nation, to those cities, but to us, to everyone that we see here. It grows where the gospel has gone beyond where it was brought initially into the Jewish law or into the Jewish area. It is now going out, as Paul was called to do. You can read through all of that in Acts um, Acts 11 through 14 is kind of the lead up to where this, this letter takes place, and then it continues on in chapters 15 and onward. But what we see here is that this is rel a relatively new church. These are new Christians. These are people who are feeble in their learning of the gospel. They have been told up to this point that they don't get to receive Christ. They don't receive acceptance into kingdom of heaven. But yet Paul is now bringing that out to them and saying, no, Christ has done this for everyone not just for the Jewish people. So this is all brand new to them. And as we learned in the past couple of chapters, there are some individuals who have come and started to corrupt, or in their terms, maybe correct the gospel. And we can see that in today's time of people who feel like they need to correct what truth is to make it their own truth. But that's what they were doing here. And Paul, as we all may know or have learned or are about to learn, doesn't quite sit well with people who do that. And doesn't quite sit well when the gospel is changed from how it was intended. And so, now we're getting into chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And Paul is recalling something to help in his argument, to help in his discussion to these people to say, look, this is really important. This is very serious. 
What is going on here? To the point that I want you to remember what happened one day back in history when I was there and Peter, an apostle from Paul, came. So let's read together, or I'll read it, I I should say better, um, from Galatians 2, if you'll follow along. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you, be compelled, oh, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. The late John Stott, a renowned author, expositor, leader of All Souls Church in London, England, had a quote in reference to this passage. And he said, This is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face to face in complete and open conflict. Side note. Taylor knows me very well. We've known each other for almost a decade, maybe, maybe a decade or more now at this point. He knows the ins and outs of my heart and my personality. He knows that I am, if you know the Enneagram, an Enneagram 9, which means that I will avoid conflict at all human possibility and would love to run and scurry and hide and avoid and just be the peacemaker to all situations. And so I'm pretty sure Taylor was chuckling as he gave me this passage to know that John Stott calls it one of the most tense scenes in all of Christianity of open and direct conflict. And he's snickering right now as he's thinking about this. Maybe that was his his purpose, but I pray that the Lord uses how I handle situations to help me in describing it to you all. Nonetheless, let's keep moving forward. (laughs) The key element I want you to hear today that we already kind of mentioned a little bit is how sin can magnify our unhealthy fear within us and which turns us to either add to the gospel or to create barriers, societal barriers between us and God's people. But that ultimately, the true gospel of Christ reverses all of that and unites us under the same common goal of Christ. We're going to do that with a few topics here. One is fear, one is leadership, and one is restoration. Three things that we see in this passage. And so we're going to dive in. We're going to go back a little bit to the verse. Verse 11. When Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, for those of you who may not know, Cephas and Peter are the same person, came to Antioch or Galatia, as we mentioned before, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, can you just imagine? Let's just sit for a second. Can you just imagine? This is a man who walked with Jesus hand in hand. The whole time Jesus was here doing his ministry, Peter was walking alongside him. Now, we look back in history, and we know that Peter had his, his fallings. He had his failings. But nonetheless, this is a man who walked alongside Christ, who we are all believing in. And Paul's walking straight up to him in front of everybody and calling him condemned. That's extremely powerful. I was trying to think of an illustration of what that would look like in today's time. and This is probably a terrible illustration, but as a sports enthusiast, as someone who loves golf, surprisingly similar as, as Taylor, 
I was trying to think, maybe it's like if Tiger Woods at the, at the height of his career and Jack Nicklaus, who is at the height of his career, both who are considered the goats of golf, all of a sudden on television, Tiger walked up to Jack and told, called him a cheater in front of the entire nation, in front of everyone. You can instantly, you can relate that to any, any area you want to. That one rings home with me. But you can instantly see that there would be division instantly when the public and the people who follow these people who, who love to, who want to, to be like them in a sense if they're if they following in that sport would instantly try and wonder, do I, do I follow, is Tiger right? Or is, is Jack right? Surely Jack wouldn't cheat. And all of a sudden you've created this in, just um, instance of conflict between the people who follow these people. Paul, in a sense, has created this in this moment. There are, he is in Galatia. He is where people are still trying to figure out what the faith in Christ looks like. That they're even allowed to accept Christ in this moment. And that he has accepted them into his kingdom if they have faith in him. And Paul walks up to one of the most premier apostles of Christ and instantly calls him condemned. I would imagine that there is some confusion going on in this church, in this area, as to what should be happening. Should we be following Paul? What's going on? Why is he calling Peter condemned? This, this seems out of question. This seems wrong. Paul is obviously feisty in the way that he gets after Peter, in the way that he defends the gospel. And so let's look and see why this came about, because it starts off with a bang right there. In verse 12, For before certain men came from James, James is the brother of Jesus, uh, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. What we've learned, or what scholars have learned, is that James, obviously the brother of Jesus, um, was the leader of church in the Jewish area, or leader of churches in that area. So coming from James means that these people came from that culture, from the Jewish culture. And as we've learned in Acts, as well as learning from previous chapters that Taylor was preaching on, that these are men called Judaizers, Judaizers. Men who, men or groupings of people who believe in Christ, who believe in his resurrection, who believe in faith in him, but also are requiring that you show in certain ways the outward showing of your faith and that not, you cannot receive that inheritance, you cannot receive that openness into the kingdom of heaven until you add those elements in, until you follow parts of the Jewish law and have faith in Christ. So we know from past that's not correct. We know that faith in Christ alone is what we need. To follow Christ alone is all that we have to have. We also see that, that Paul, I mean Peter, sorry, I'm probably going to mix those up a little bit. I'll try and make sure I get it right. Um, that Peter has come to the Gentiles and has been there for a bit. He's been eating with the Gentiles. As we, as we learned about in Acts um, last week when Taylor was talking about the authority, where does, where does Paul receive his authority? He went to Jerusalem just to confirm with Peter and James and John that maybe not that his authority, why he gets to preach this or what he's being preached comes from them, it comes from Christ as we learned, but that they are all on the same mission for Christ. Let's make sure, well, let's understand, we are all, I'm called to the Gentiles, you are called to the Jewish people, let's take this to those groups so Paul has already come from that. And Peter has already, in a sense, talked with Paul about all of these things. And we start to see that Paul has, or Peter has come to visit with him for some reason. 
Maybe to see how the workings of the gospel is happening in that area. How Paul is working with them to show them Christ and to preach to them the true gospel. And Peter's right in there with them, eating with them, which was unheard of. To think of prior to Christ, Gentiles and Jews sitting down to eat together was a huge taboo or faux pas or whatever word you want to use. It was unheard of and would deem to be, um, again, bringing conflict to the cultures and bringing potentially cultural wars. And so you can see there's a lot already happening that Peter is in with this. He's great. He's following with the gospel. Paul and him are preaching the beautiful, true gospel. But then all of a sudden, men from the Jewish sector come. And Peter pulls back. He recoils. He becomes a recluse and steps away from the brothers and sisters that are there in the Gentile nation. Without saying a word, Peter openly creates confusion and conflict and doubt in the minds of the church of Galatia. And why would he do all of that? It says there in verse 13 or verse 12, he was afraid. He was afraid of these men. He was afraid of their judgment that they would have on him for being a man in the Gentile nation seeking to bring the gospel to them. That leads us to our first point, fear. Fear of the acceptance of by man can drive us away from Christ, away from the gospel. What would lead a man like Peter, who personally knows Jesus, who walked with him, who learned from his lips to walk away and to put something else between him and God and to be afraid of men? You can start to see how Satan tempts us in that way. Our bodies are weak. Our minds are weak. Our souls can be weak when we put other things in front of Christ. It starts to put distance between us, even when we don't know it. We start to fear, well, if we just need acceptance, I just need a little bit of affirmation from these people. I just need to gain acceptance from these friends or from these leaders. We can take that into so many different realms. Maybe it's political parties or things that are dividing the country today that we feel we have to put our acceptance in. We can't just, we can't just have the fact that Christ died for our souls. He was re- resurrected and then ascended to heaven all for the pure acceptance of us into the kingdom of God. And yet we feel that we need more. Satan pushes that onto our hearts to know that maybe I just need acceptance from these guys or from those guys. It's painful to think that we can be so weak to be changed by that when we know how much God has done for us. You know how much he has saved for us. One of the, one of C.S. Lewis's books is called Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read it. It's, that, that is probably something I should recommend from up here rather than The Demolition Man. Um, <laughs> so, Taylor, remember that I said that. Um, but in Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read it, C.S. Lewis writes a book about the lessons of Christianity, but from the perspectives of demons. And it's letters from, well, I guess, a lead demon to a novice demon, and it's his nephew that is writing these letters. So it's Screwtape the Uncle and Wormwood, or Wormwood the Uncle and Screwtape the... Either way, same thing, Screwtape and Wormwood. And in this, you start to see, you start to understand, or 
at least understand maybe what demons are thinking or how they could be portraying the Christian faith and how we as fickle humans can, can be so deceived in how we view this. And I just wanted to read a quick passage from that. Um, the, the novice demon has written to his uncle and saying that he has gotten his patient, as he calls them in these as us, to start associating with other people and to start putting his attention towards that. And Wormwood says this, No doubt he must very soon realize that his own faith is in direct opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversation of his new friends is based. He will be silent when he ought to speak and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will assume at first only by his manner, but presently by his words, all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his. But if you play him well, they may become his. And I think that's just an, evident, an illustration of showing that how in our hearts we can see that working. We can see that when we start trying to receive affirmation or acceptance, we don't have enough from God. We need something from other people that that starts to twist in our heart. That starts to say, okay, yeah, I, I, I do think. I, I don't need this anymore. Or, or I think I may need it a little bit with Christ, but I need their acceptance more. I need to follow that group before I follow Christ. And how tricked we can be into following through on that. It also goes into detail to, or at least illustrates, how we can lose sight of where we are once we seek that much affirmation from the culture around us or from people around us and lose sight. We almost become in a complete state of confusion as to how to get back to the gospel. More on that here in just a minute. Also, when we start to pull away, when we start to seek affirmation from others, or we start to put things in front of Christ, what we're doing is we're building barriers. We're actually trying to find unity in these people. We're trying to find groups that affirm us, that we can provide unification with. And so in that order, we're actually building barriers to kind of keep us in, to protect us. That's what group, these groups tend to do. And by doing that, we start to isolate ourselves even more. We're called in the gospel to be united under Christ that there are no barriers between us. That Christ is the only reason we have the option to even talk to one another, to speak with one another, to have entry into the kingdom of God. He's done that for us. And in a sense, is trying to demolish those barriers that we have created by seeking after the groups that we reach out to. This isn't to say you shouldn't be a part of any political party or any fancy group, dinner club, whatever it is that you want to go and be a part of but that you should be aware and that you should be cognizant of how much it's taking over in your mind. Where is it placing, where is it being put? Is it putting, being put in front of the gospel? Is it hindering you from reaching other people because they're not part of your group, because they're not part of what you believe here on earth? Is it stopping you from actually going to speak the gospel to somebody because of the barrier that you're building? We see this even in theological settings. We do things maybe differently than the church down the road does. We may have bread and juice. They may have bread and wine. We may have baptism and immersion. They may have baptism at different times in their, in their learning of Christ. Those things are secondary to the fact that you only have to have faith in Christ to receive the kingdom. There are things that are of secondary nature, of, of, of essential and non-essential doctrine. And you can actually read some of that in what we do here at King's Cross if you haven't already. 
what we hold true, what we know is firm, that is specifically stated in the Bible, in Scripture, as not being able to be changed, and those that still require interpretation. And that's okay. It's okay to have differences. And in fact, we should celebrate, in a sense, our differences, whether it's theological, whether it's um, racial, whether it's social status, whether it's anything. These things, God has made us all to have different roles. We don't need to be one person. We don't all need to look the same. We don't all need to act and talk the same. But we do all need to believe the same thing, that Christ is the only true path to heaven. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, actually, not that much. I, I cut that down, actually. Um, in verse 13 to 14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Just as I mentioned that the gospel demolishes those barriers, Christ recognized that there are differences, that there are ways that we separate ourselves from each other and that there are ways that we put up barriers between us. And he informs us that Christ eliminates all of those things. There's another area I was just kind of mentioning too, um, another illustration. I love illustrations, by the way, if you haven't, if you haven't learned that. It helps me to learn, um, and so I usually have a few of them in here. Um, there's another book series called The Silo Saga. If you haven't read that, there's actually a show on TV now. Um, and for, for at least one of the books. But it's a series where it's based where people are actually living underground because of some disaster that happened above ground here on earth. This is far in the future. And they're living underground and have for hundreds of years. And they just kind of go about their day-to-days just as we do, except they can't see the sun. Um, and they're not vampires. Um, but that they're doing all these things. And you start to realize as you get deeper and deeper into the story that these people, after hundreds of years, have no idea what even happened on the surface, or how, why they can't go up there, or what happened in history. Their leaders had twisted that, had kept it silent. There was some reason that happened that you learn later in the books, but that the people that are living there day to day now have no idea how to even get out, or why they can't. And I think that's actually true of some things. When we start putting something in front of the gospel, as I was kind of mentioning before, we can lose sight of where the door is to get out. Even if we start to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in us, we start to wonder, can I leave these friends? Can I leave this group? Do I have the power to do that? Where do I even go? And I think that in that, obviously, that's where our church body comes in, where our brothers and sisters in Christ come in. If we choose to shut them out, we choose to shut the door. They're helping us to find it. We require that, and again, I'm going to speak more on that in a second, but I wanted to hit on that for a minute. The next topic after fear is leadership. We see here that Peter is a leader. We know that he's a leader. He knows that he's a leader. And he instantly makes a move that causes division in all of Christianity. As John Stott said, this is, this is basically the crux of Christianity. This is a time when we're trying to send the gospel out to the Gentile nation, and all of a sudden, something that Peter has done may potentially halt that from happening in the early beginnings of the church. Not that we are all Peters, not that we are all Pauls, but we, those who believe in Christ, are all called to lead people to the gospel. We're all called to be leaders in some form or fashion. And just as Peter did it, he didn't say he was going to walk away. 
He did it without saying a word, but just with his actions. He stepped away and caused great confusion and calamity. I think we have to be aware that we have a responsibility to the gospel and we have a responsibility to the people, our friends, that we are, in a sense, being watched. Even by the outside culture, they may not call us leaders, but in a sense, we are trying to lead them to Christ and I ask that you just be aware of your actions and your words and how you speak and where your motivations are before you speak, before you do those things. One other thing that we see, and this kind of ties into restoration but with leadership, is that Paul is a leader. Paul realizes that he has a role to play here, not just in seeing his brother step away for a second to have a small moment of fear that comes in and directs his attention away, but he has a role as a leader to step up and to right the path that someone may have wronged, to help them see the light that they have lost for the moment. Because in that moment, not only for, not only for the Gentiles' sake is Paul doing this, to help to ensure that Christianity remains true, that the gospel remains true, but that Peter's life, that Peter's conviction, that Peter's heart remains true to Christ in that as well. And that as he steps away, we as brothers and sisters step up to bring them back, to encourage them to come back to the true gospel. That's where restoration comes in. We are all called to do that. It is not our job to walk away from our brothers and sisters even when they don't recognize that they are stepping away. We are called to support them and encourage them. You can look back in Matthew, in Matthew 18, I believe, which is where our King's Cross statement or doctrine about restorative discipleship comes in. Jesus spells it out for us. Bring a brother and sister with you when someone has stepped away. Help them to come back to Christ. Help them to come back to the true gospel. From there, bring in more if they're still um, resistance to it. But we also note in our bylaws, and, and as Paul does here, there are some scenarios that cannot wait through the process. There are some scenarios that are so serious to how Christianity could be affected in your church and others and the people that are beside you and in their own faith that you have to act immediately and with some intensity. Paul does that here. As we see in 14, when I saw that you were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you will force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul does not hold back any punches, as we've learned. Paul actually, I think, likes to punch. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I'm a nine. I don't like conflict. Paul seems to thrive in that situation. And I think he not only like he's, he doesn't want there to be these scenarios, but when it does, it's like he goes into go mode. He powers up and he takes, he takes that one breath or that one sip of Gatorade and he goes right at it. <laughs> to think that an apostle, as we mentioned before, Peter in the verses before this in chapter two, he calls Peter a pillar of Christianity. He knows that this is a man that everyone should follow behind Christ. He is leading you towards Christ. And he blatantly, publicly, just wears him out. Wears him out in front of them all. But that was critical 
to the, the Gentile nations seeing that and the Judaizers seeing that to bring them back to the true gospel. And it worked. If you look in the next chapter of 15 where we've said this Galatians letter takes place really at the end of 14 before 15 starts, the next thing in 15 is where they all go to Jerusalem for the council at Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and speaks to what true faith, the true gospel is. And he, he elaborates to everyone there in Jerusalem that true faith is not adding anything else to the gospel. It is not following these individuals who are adding to the gospel. It is about one thing, taking up your cross and following Christ. And that is all that we have to do. We receive that acceptance from him. I'm so grateful for Paul. I'm so grateful for Peter. We all fall. If you can imagine that Peter, a person who's walked with Christ, is going to fall, we're all going to fall. We're all going to falter. We can be called to imitate Christ, to be perfect, but we know that's not going to happen. And so we need our brothers and sisters. You need to be within a community. You need to be seeking refuge in each other and hope for the criticism that you need because, again, we will all fall. Help, help yourself by allowing others to speak into your life about Christ and about the true gospel that we need to learn and follow. As we can see here, this is a powerful moment. You can go into so many different levels in just these three verses about what you want to speak on here, about what you can learn from these two individuals and from the scene that occurs in Galatia. But I pray that it takes heart in you and that for the main reason, the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel, power of the gospel, and how it demolishes the barriers that we ourselves try to build to somehow bring us comfort by uniting with others, that the gospel tears that down and says, no, your comfort is in the Lord. Your comfort is in that acceptance. Do not fear man. Do not fear their acceptance or their judgment. Whatever it is that you need, fear God. Have reverence for God. He has provided it all, and you need not do anything other than love the Lord with all your heart. I pray that that is a message for you all today and for myself.